1: I'm Emily Tampkin, Senior Editor, U.S. in Washington, D.C.
2: I'm Ido Volk, Europe Correspondent in Paris.
3: I'm Emma Hazlitt, Associate Editor, Business in London.
1: It's Thursday, the 28th of April. You're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs.
2: Emmanuel Macron beat Marine Le Pen to be re-elected president of France. I I will bear this project with strength for the the years years to come, bearing in mind the the divisions and the differences that have been expressed. How has the international community reacted?
3: Then we turn to a trending topic. Billionaire Elon Musk is buying Twitter.
0: So, Elon, um, a few hours ago, you made an
2: offer to buy Twitter. Why? Well, I think it's very important for uh, there to be an inclusive arena for free speech.
3: What are the potential ramifications? Thank you for joining us. Let's begin.
1: All right, Emma, is this your World Review debut? I'm so excited to well, be Well, welcome. We are delighted, delighted to have you. And we are going to turn to your business expertise in just a moment. Um, but first, listeners, if you have not been or if you did not listen to Ido's pop-up podcast, France Alex, on the French election, you should go back and listen to the most recent one in which she unpacks the election results. But Ido, for listeners who haven't done that and are not going to do that, um, briefly, you said at the top there. Macron won. Can you just give us a two sentence summary of Sunday's second round?
2: Yeah. So once again, Macron faced the far right leader, Marine Le Pen, in the second round. He had already beaten her in 2017. And this time there was the same matchup. And in the end, he won by a smaller margin than in 2017, but still a fairly convincing margin. So he won with 58% of the vote compared to 66 five years ago. But that means that he's become the first French president to be re-elected for 20 years, so since 2002, and the first for, I think, over 50 to be re-elected while he holds a parliamentary majority. And it's always been a he, unfortunately. So combined with the increasing criticism that Germany in particular is coming under for its stance on weapons to Ukraine and on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, this kind of puts Macron in quite a good stead as basically the de facto leader of Europe and, and one of Europe's most experienced uh, statesmen, certainly one of the most experienced of a big EU country.
1: As you say, there were many immediately after he won who sort of said, well, he's the new the new de facto leader of Europe. What were some of the reactions throughout Europe to his, his re-election?
2: Basically, universal relief, because Lupin would have marked such a drastic change of course, and for most European countries I think an unwelcome change of course. And so the fact that Macron was, was re-elected and you know, we broadly know who he is, he's got liberal pro-European positions which appeal to the majority of European countries. At the same time, I think the relief quickly gave way to a sort of apprehension because Macron often grates European countries or other European countries. So you might remember last year, there was the AUKUS ruckus. Australia cancelled a contract that it had signed with France to purchase diesel submarines and instead said that it would purchase nuclear submarines from France or the US. And many European countries resented being dragged into that by Macron at the time because they said, well, you know, what have what have we got to do with this? It's not our they're not our contracts. We don't really have a direct interest here. And Macron tried to make it a European issue. And many countries resented that. And I think the kind of that that's just an example of how how Macron is sometimes grated with other leaders. And so the, the kind of relief that he's not Lupin, I think, will quite quickly fade into well, we will see more tensions emerge if if Macron is not sincere about changing his style, which has often been criticized as quite high-handed and somewhat out of touch.
1: I think that there was a similar dynamic here in the US with Washington, where on the one hand, the Biden administration, certainly most of policymakers in DC really did not want a Le Pen presidency, especially not right now. They did not need a person who is quite... EU skeptical has been quite critical of NATO. Who has expressed you know support for admiration for Putin? They did. They just didn't need that person to be president of France right now, and so I think there was relief. On the other hand, Macron has not always uh, gotten along so well with everyone here in Washington. You know, there was the the NATO is brain dead comment. There is the oh we need to fortify our own European security. And I think even when Macron and certain uh, leaders in Washington are aligned, right? Like I think most transatlanticists here would say that they agreed that Europe should do more to take care of its own security. Sometimes the way in which he expresses it rubs <laughs> rubs some in DC the wrong way. So I, I, do, I do think that we'll see something similar and it will be interesting to see whether he recalibrates his posture toward the US in term two. One specific leader I wanted to ask you about, European leader I wanted to ask you about before letting Emma have a say on this, if she'd like, is Schultz. There's always a lot of attention paid to the relationship between the leader of France and the leader of Germany. Schultz was obviously elected toward the end of Macron's first term. Now we're a little bit into Schultz's term, kicking off Macron term two. What do you think that that dynamic duo will have in store for us?
2: So French presidents always make their first visit upon taking office to Berlin. And Macron is very much a, a kind of enthusiastic proponent of the... Franco-German relationship or as they as they call it in France somewhat romantically um le couple franco-allemand the Franco-German couple which apparently they don't call that in Germany which gives you an idea of perhaps how <laughs> how one-sided the the couple really is but clearly Macron has long had ambitions to to change Europe to deepen integration so a particular success was the mutualized debt that was agreed in the summer of 2020 to, to finance the recovery from the COVID pandemic, which had been something that Germany under its previous chancellor uh, Angela Merkel had long resisted, and Macron managed to convince Merkel to, to take on mutualized debt, which was spoken by some as the, as the EU's Hamiltonian moment. I would suspect that there are ambitions to use the Ukrainian crisis to provide similar impetus for some of the ambitions that Macron has. Has long had so. I'm thinking in particular of more integration on on defence and a stronger European defence to achieve what Macron has called um, European strategic autonomy, which basically means uh, an EU better able to act independently at times uh, of of the US and of um, of its other rivals and to kind of assert its its own weight geopolitically. And I think for many EU member states, that was a difficult sell for a very long time, but clearly. The Ukrainian crisis and the invasion of Ukraine have completely changed the calculus on that, um, and they've they've made the more reticent member states, I think, realise that the world we live in now is different to the world that we lived in on the twenty third of February, and and I think that will help build momentum for for things to change in the direction that Macron has has long argued for, and. I think if if he succeeds, it will be a very similar dynamic to how he managed to convince the EU to take on. I mean, it was you know it was it was a project and and i an idea I think primarily pushed by France to mutualize debt. Basically, it was. Macron's long-standing ideas being put into practice because of a crisis. And if he succeeds on this kind of greater integration, in particular on defence, it will be a a similar dynamic, something that he's long argued for, that many member states were reluctant to push forward. And then a crisis, meaning that the ideas that he has long supported, reticent member states are finally convinced to put ideas that he has long supported into practice.
1: Emma, is there anything that you wanted to to say on this segment. I literally have one question. And it's for Edo,
3: And that is, like, how many more times is Marine Le Pen going to run? Because she's done it three times and failed. I know she was close this time, but she still failed. Like, is she just going to give up?
2: Yeah, I mean, her dad ran for election five times. For much of it, that was um, when presidents had seven-year terms. So (laughs) if she really wants to, she's still got a bit of mileage in her left. Um, Le Pen has done something really, really impressive politically. Essentially, she has convinced large swathes of formerly left-wing voters to back her. And you can see this if you look at a map of her support. The bulk of it is in the northern parts of France, these kind of ex-industrial areas which have been depressed for, for a long time and have kind of been the, you know, that, that is the kind of equivalent to, to the the Rust Belt in the US, or the deindustrialized parts of of, of England in the UK, and um, these kind of, you know, we we call them left behind areas, right? And she has appealed to to the voters in those areas with an economic program of higher higher welfare, um, protectionism, as well as um, hard anti-immigration politics. But it is not clear to me that another candidate of the radical right will be able to. Achieve the same feat, and that's because most of her rivals on the radical right belong to the southern wing of the nationalist right, which is much more petit bourgeois, much more economically liberal. These are people like Zemmour or like Marion Maréchal Le Pen, Marine Le Pen's niece, Marine Le Pen's niece, and these these are people who uh, who who belong to the southern wing of the. I mean, the, kind of broadly, the, the the wing of the nationalist right, which is rooted in the south rather than the north. And if one of those people were to take over the the mantle of the leader of the far right, it's not clear to me that they'd be able to succeed in uniting both their core constituency in the south of France or the, the southern half of France, as well as the voters that Marine Le Pen um, has appealed to in particular in the north. And that, that's a very long-winded way of saying, I think the hard right, Lupin's far right, will be thinking very hard about how it is that they get from forty-two to fifty-one percent, and whether someone other than Lupin—I mean, clearly there'll be pretenders to her crown—but whether someone other than Lupin can can manage that is a very, very open question. I think.
3: So great to hear that it's passing on to the next generation, though. Yeah, I potentially.
2: Mean, well. You've you've now had two people called Le Pen who failed to be elected. I think in total about eight times. So maybe maybe we can make it
3: yeah, a few more. trick.
1: <laughs> and for more, again, for more on the sort of domestic ramifications on the election itself, do check out the last episode of Ido's France Elects. But for now, we are turning from one highly controversial figure to another, because Elon Musk is buying Twitter. In, in, in case there's any lucky listener who has not been following the story closely. (laughs) What's going on here? Okay, so
3: Elon Musk on the 27th of March tweeted, sees the memes of production, which is clever. And then he made a funny joke, so he had to follow it up. And so he has now offered to buy Twitter for $44 billion, which even by his standards is a lot of money.
1: And how is he
3: doing this? Okay, so what he's done is he... He may be somewhere between the first and second richest person in the world, depending on what day you're looking at it, but he still needs to borrow to buy Twitter. So he is borrowing about $25.5 billion, which would make it the biggest left or one of the biggest leverage buyout deals in history. I mean, imagine borrowing $25.5 billion. It's just. I can't. That insane is
1: where. My are. imagination. And, and in fact, many billions before that, I can't imagine it. Like- <laughs> I got
3: very, very anxious when I signed my mortgage agreement. And I can tell you now that didn't right. have yeah.
1: very many zeros
3: behind it at all. Like, it's quite interesting because there is. It basically means that because of the way he structured the buyout, Twitter is going to end up paying an enormous amount of interest. So its interest burden is going to increase. And again, think of this in context of a mortgage, is makes it very anxious making. Its interest burden will increase to $845 million a year. It was $51 million a year in 2021. So he is hitting Twitter with a vast amount of debt.
2: So why why is he doing this? What's his what is he say? What are the reasons that he's saying he's doing this, and what are the reasons that he might not be saying?
3: He has kind of suggested that he's doing this for the good of humanity,
2: and it's because
3: Twitter is an important, um he called it a public square, digital public square. And um, so he says that he's doing this for the sake of freedom of speech. he's he's helping the world. I think our colleague Will Dunn has questioned this quite a lot. He's pointed out that the way that elon musk makes his money is it's not by selling cars or sending rockets into space or boring tunnels because elon musk runs four companies tesla spacex the boring company and something called Neuralink. that's not how he makes his money the way he makes his money is by selling shares and the way he does that is by being a very controversial person on twitter people he's kind of created a cult of personality and people are buying into that cult of personality they want a piece of it so they buy shares in tesla and um, so if you look at to- tesla's total net income from over a decade of selling cars they've lost just over 350 million dollars and it's income and this is kind of a rudimentary way of of saying it but its income from selling shares and bonds on capital markets over the same period is about 32 billion dollars and of course all that money hasn't gone straight into musk's pocket but you know, it still increases net worth massively.
1: So basically, he's positioned himself as a free speech absolutist. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also tweeted, basically, free speech means no more cens- censorship than the law, which will have interesting implications should this actually be completed, because there are some countries in which censorship is very strict, right? So we're going to see how this is going to play out in, I don't know, in India, for example. Mm-hmm. Here in the United States, Twitter employees are already reportedly expressing anxiety that Musk is going to, I mean, he's already doing it, right? He's sort of tweeting at these right-wing figures saying like, oh, interesting, that employee sounds bad. Um, and so Twitter yeah. employees are, are understandably nervous about this. And, and I don't want to make it sound like Twitter as it is now is like this, this wonderful experience to be on, but <laughs> I just think that it could always, the, the terms of engagement on a social media site and, and what made the site the platform that Musk wanted to buy in the first place they can always get worse. Yeah. But how do you think this is this is going to go? Well, if you look at, I mean, test,
3: uh, Elon Musk says that he loves free speech, and that's really great for him. But he, you know, if you look at his behavior, it doesn't necessarily bear out. So he's criticized his media coverage. He's called BBC and New York Times coverage fake and staged. That doesn't sound like a free speech lover to me. He's also asked Tesla owners, certain Tesla owners, to sign NDAs. Again, it's not like a huge signal of loving free speech that so you know there is an argument that this isn't about free speech at all that this is about having control over his biggest marketing platform i mean tesla spends zero dollars a year on marketing and on advertising other car manufacturers spend 35 billion dollars a year so it's he's just basically owning a big marketing platform
0: if
2: we take him at his word and, and assume that he really is buying Twitter uh, for the good of free speech, humanity and to, to increase free speech on the internet, I, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on how he would actually implement that. And I, I ask basically because social media platforms have content moderation policies for like moral reasons and also for financial reasons. And like you can remove all content moderation if you want to and just allow complete free-for-all, but generally advertisers aren't huge fans of that and then you end up with an unviable business or other or i suppose perhaps a business financed by the most unsavory parts of society and of, of the internet mm-hmm. or you have to implement some sort of content moderation and then you have to decide where the line is and and so if he's really doing this with free speech how do we expect the functioning of twitter to to change
3: it's a really good question and um My answer is that I've got absolutely no idea, Ido, because Twitter makes most of its money from advertising. Musk seems to be really into the idea of its subscription model, which is $3 a month, I think. And you get all kinds of things. And he wants to give people who pay that money a blue tick, which means they're verified, which means they're more important than the other people in his eyes. If you look at how subscription-based businesses are going at the moment, Netflix, for instance, If they're not going brilliantly, a lot of them are losing subscribers because people are looking at the cost of living and they're saying, right, what can I lose? So really, it would make sense to him to focus on advertising. But as you say, if you suddenly allow a load of trolls and abuse on a platform like that, you're going to lose advertisers. It almost is like he hasn't thought this through, but I don't want to throw around accusations. (laughs) Right, (laughs) Right.
2: And just to get this right, so either not that much changes or stuff does change and he turns twitter into gab but then you know it's a really quick way and efficient way gab of losing just, a big big chunk gab, of just,
1: just for anyone who's not familiar gab is a is a far right social media platform
2: so either not that much changes on twitter or he turns twitter into gab and it's a really efficient way of losing a big chunk of 50 billion dollars is that roughly right
3: I mean, it sounds like that. One thing to really kind of take into account, right, is that his other main company is Tesla. And Tesla makes about half its cars and it generates about a quarter of its sales in China. China does not like Twitter very much because it gives a lot of dissidents accounts. It lets them say whatever they want and it allows people to criticize its government quite happily and in the open. So there is a risk that he could give some concessions to the Chinese government. That would be a real concern. So there have been some suggestions that, for instance, it would allow its kind of troll farms to be more active on Twitter. But, you know, it's very hard to say. Maybe he really does have some good ideas, but it's, it's, you know, I feel like Twitter have spent a lot of time really trying to figure out how to balance things. So it's... It's just incredibly difficult to say what he's going to do and what his plan is and I don't want to throw around accusations but does he actually have a plan that is the real
1: question. Well that is one that we will we will have to keep watching uh, to find out.
2: <laughs> Wherever you are in the world
1: if you're interested in global affairs
2: you can subscribe to the New Statesman in digital in print or both from as little as 1 pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12.
1: That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America.
2: Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast. Audio long reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud.
1: Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality in fiction rolled into one.
2: Featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover, Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election, and Sophie McBain on the refugee crisis.
3: Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Marworth screamed back,
1: who is dying?
2: Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts.
1: For now, it is time for a question that we like to call "You Ask U-ask-a. Us." Wonderful. Um, okay, so our question this week basically people wanted to know whether Russia is going to invade Moldova. know you have a piece on this, so we will we will turn to you.
2: Yeah. So the reason Moldova is in the news is because there have been a series of unexplained explosions in a breakaway region of Moldova called Transnistria, which is basically um, Moldova's landlocked country. It's basically a strip of land, quite a big strip of land, between uh, Romania and Ukraine. And the eastern border of Moldova is ruled by Russian-backed separatists, and it's a region called um, Transnistria. And there are about 1,500 Russian troops stationed there. And this week, the country has been shaken by a series of unexplained explosions. So the separatist authorities in Transnistria have said that two radio masts were blown up on the 25th of April and that the Ministry of State Security had been shelled with grenade launchers the following day. And essentially, because Transnistria has Russian troops in it and also is on the western border of Ukraine, there is some fear, including um, From the presidential administration in Ukraine that Russia may be using these attacks as a kind of false flag to to, to create a new front in in the war and to extend the war outside of the borders of, of Ukraine. I will caveat everything I'm about to say by saying that if you had used what seemed rational and achievable and sensible for the Russian military to set as its goals over the past two months, you would not have been right about very much. I didn't think that Russia would invade Ukraine because I thought it would clearly lead to some sort of military disaster and it would be a a virtually suicidal mission that wouldn't make any sense um, militarily for Russia. I continue to believe that that was basically the case. Clearly, I was wrong about Russia not taking the decision to invade. With all that said, it seems to me that fears over a new front opening in Transnistria in southwestern Ukraine are probably misplaced for a few reasons. So first of all, there are about 1,500 troops stationed in Transnistria, but the people I've spoken to say that these are pretty badly trained troops. They don't have very much, very good equipment. Anyway, there are only 1,500, right? Um, If you think that Russia's invasion force for Ukraine was 200,000 people, clearly 1,500 people is not enough for a new front. And Uh, geographically Transnistria is surrounded obviously by Moldova and then western Ukraine and then there's a little pocket of Ukraine the the south the southwestern corner of Ukraine which is between Moldova and Romania uh, and the Black Sea on the other side there is no kind of direct line to resupply these troops to send in reinforcements to send in weapons or anything it could be done either overland through Ukraine, so from Russian-controlled territory in southern Ukraine, through to Moldova, sort of around Odessa. But clearly, Odessa is very well defended, and they're not making very quick progress in the south of Ukraine. So that would be very risky. Or they could do it over over the Black Sea from Crimea, but they don't have naval superiority. And the sinking of the Moskva cruiser, Russia's flagship cruiser, a few weeks ago illustrates the the dangers of potentially attempting to to resupply troops on a theoretical southwestern front via, via the sea. So I do not think that it would be particularly rational for Russia to open up a, a new front in Transnistria or attempt to take over control of, of more territory in Moldova or southwestern Ukraine or anything. They've clearly got a big fight on their hands in southern and eastern Ukraine already, and if they were to, to add another front to their fight, it would clearly add add another level of operational difficulty to to what they're trying to do. But I will again caveat this by saying that if you were guided by what was what looked sensible and achievable and rational for the Russian army to to set as its goals, you would have been very wrong at very many junctures throughout this war. So um, so that's the caveat I will I will give.
1: That's slightly anxiety making. Yes, it's I think I mean, I think just to really underscore Ido's point, on the one hand, this would not be a rational thing to do on the other hand, well, I mean there are some who say that Russia is following its own internal rationale, but we've seen the sort of soundness of that of that rationale thus far.
3: We're not sure what that rationale is, right, exactly.
2: <laughs> Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. You can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us.
1: That's all the time we have for today. Join us next week for an interview with our very own Katie Stallard on her new book, Dancing on Bones, History and Power in China, Russia, and North Korea. Katie's book is out on May 2nd. You can buy it online in bookshops. Um, If you've read her writing, you know that she's an incredible, talented writer and reporter and thinker, and we are very excited about her publication date. Congratulations, Katie.
2: If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please leave us a review and a like. It really does help.
1: Our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening, and until next time.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh